Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Uh, Many of you know that my grandmother passed away last Saturday. She was 95 years old, uh, loved Jesus with all of her heart, and uh, and passed away peacefully in her sleep. Uh, But because of that, my brother and I have traveled to Florida this week to be with my family and to to observe the the graveside service of my grandmother. And so for that reason, I'm not in the room today, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to share this message with you. We've been going through a series called Relation Slips and uh, hated to miss the opportunity to do that. So we took advantage of the technology we have available to us and uh, pre-recorded this message today. So thanks for allowing me to be with my family. Thank you for your prayers and your support. And I look forward to being back with you again next Sunday. Uh, As we jump into this, like I said, we've been in a teaching series called Relation Slips. We've been talking about marriage and we've been talking about parenting. And so as we've jumped into some different things, two weeks ago, we started the parenting side of the discussion. Last Sunday, if you were with us, we uh, took a Sunday away from relation slips to introduce our J-term uh, messages. And so today we're getting back into relation slips. If you've missed any of this teaching series, we think it's been really, really good. We've gotten great feedback from it. And I would encourage you to go online and check that out on our website, on our app, on YouTube, and uh, watch some of these messages to help you as you're growing in your faith, as you're growing in your marriage, as you're growing as a parent uh, or even a grandparent. There are some helpful things here that we're looking at from a biblical perspective to see that we don't slip up in some of the most important relationships that we have. And so with that in mind, I want us to jump into this morning. Last time that we were together in this series, we talked about this idea. As a parent, you're raising a worshiper. And we talked about the fact that all of us worship something. And and the desire of our hearts as Christians is to bring our kids to a place where they know how to worship Jesus and that they fall in love with Jesus. Discipling your kids in your home is the most important thing that you will do in your life. And so it's important that we know what that looks like and how to do that. And so we talked about the idea of raising a worshiper. Here's where I want us to jump in today, and you're going to see something new. And this is going to be the first blank on your outline, so go ahead and write this down this morning. You are raising a sinner. (laughs) Now, that's probably a weird thing to say, uh, especially after we talked last week about raising a worshiper to turn around this week and say you're raising a sinner. But really, that doesn't come as a surprise to any of us, does it? The fact that you have a sinner in your home, the fact that you're a sinner, the fact that in earlier messages in this series, we talked about the idea that you married a sinner. There's just sin going on all along our lives and all around our lives. And no matter how cute you think your kid is, no matter how adorable, no matter what nickname you give him or her, prince, princess, whatever it is, they are a sinner, right? And here's the worst part about that. They get it from you. They get it from me. We are inherently sinful. We're born into sin. And that comes from our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell in rebellion against God and sinned against God. 
Sin entered the world and it's been passed down. Every single person born is sinful. Romans 3.23 says, For all sin and come short of the glory of God. This is a human problem. Your kids are sinful. You're raising a sinner. And because sin exists in life, the need for discipline exists. And so today we're going to talk about this difficult topic of being a parent who disciplines your kids or a grandparent who disciplines your grandkids. And what does that look like? And so the first thing I want to do is define the word discipline. So this is going to come up on your screen for you. I want you to see this definition. Here's what discipline is. It's training someone to obey rules or a code of behavior using proper punishment to correct disobedience. Now I want to read that one more time just so we get it. Discipline is training someone to obey rules or a code of behavior using proper punishment. That's important. We're going to talk through that to correct disobedience. Now here's the difficult question. What happens if I don't want to be the disciplinarian in my home? What happens if I don't want to discipline my kids? What happens if I would rather be their friend and just be permissive to them. Just let them do the things they want to do. Just let them get away with whatever they do. And there's no discipline. What happens if I don't want to discipline my kids? Well, let's look at a couple of stories in Scripture. And we're going to see what the danger of raising people without discipline looks like. And I can tell you this, if you take that approach that you're not going to be a disciplinarian in your home, you have no desire to step into that role to raise your kids in a specific way or to, to discipline them when there's disobedience, to bring proper punishment, good, helpful correction to them when they do the wrong things, you're inviting your life and your family and everybody around you to be involved in a train wreck. And so I want us to see this in Scripture today. We're going to look at two stories in the life of the same family. And it's the family of King David. And we know King David is a man after God's own heart. He was a great king. But David wasn't always a great parent. And we're going to see that play out here. So I want you to see this. Two stories. The first comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. And so here's what's going on. David is nearing death. And as he's on his deathbed, just days or weeks away, there's been no proclamation about who's going to succeed him as king. There's been no public announcement about that. The kingdom is in jeopardy. And so everybody's left wondering what's going to happen after David is gone. And so one of David's kids decides he'll take some initiative. And so here's what we see in this part of the story. First Kings chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this, now... Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and he said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and he was born next after Absalom. And we're going to talk about Absalom in just a few minutes. But in the absence of a public declaration of who's going to follow David as king, Adonijah sets himself up to be king. And apparently, based on some context here that we see, 
Adonijah had a history of some bad behavior. He had a history of disobedience, of going against the rules of his family, of his father. And now with David on his deathbed and no succession plan in place, Adonijah declares himself to be king. And look at what the author here of 1 Kings tells us about the relationship between Adonijah and his father David. He says his father had never once ever rebuked him by simply saying, why do you behave like you do? Why do you act like that, Adonijah? Why do you do the crazy things that you do? Why don't you listen? Why, why do you continue to disobey and go against us? And so when Adonijah disobeyed or rebelled in his youth, there was no rebuke from dad. There was no discipline. There was no correction. And in that, nothing existed to reign Adonijah in. He was a wild card. And so David never bothered to interfere in his son's life, and it almost cost him the kingdom. Actually, it almost cost Solomon the kingdom because we're told after this story that David announces that Solomon is the one who's going to inherit the throne of Israel. And so David's lack of responsibility in disciplining his son almost cost Solomon his kingship. And so what we see in this is that David struggled with discipline. And there's another story because this is not the only time that David gets close to losing the kingdom. He had another son. It was mentioned here in this passage. His name was Absalom. And I want you to see how the story unfolds of some things that take place in another section of David's life at another period of time. David has many kids. Another one we're going to look at here whose name is Amnon. Amnon thought he was in love with his half-sister. That's a little bit weird in and of itself. They shared David as a father, but had different mothers. Amnon falls in love or thinks he does. He's really lusting after her in his heart with his sister Tamar, his half-sister. And Amnon takes things to the extreme that he actually rapes his half-sister. This is Absalom's full sister. And here's the problem. David finds out about it. And while the Bible says that he's furious over the event... David does nothing. He doesn't step in. He doesn't condemn Amnon. He doesn't punish Amnon. There's nothing that takes place. Now, Absalom, the full brother of Tamar, he decides he's going to take care of the problem. And so he devises a plan for how he'll kill his half-brother. And that's exactly what he does. Absalom kills Amnon. And in the middle of all that, guess what happens again? After he kills his half-brother, he flees. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes off on his own. Guess what David does? Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. David mourns over the death of Amnon. He mourns over the fact that he's not close anymore with Absalom, but he does nothing. There's no discipline. There's no correction. There's no rebuke. And so for a period of time, a period of years, Absalom lives away from Jerusalem But eventually, he comes back. And when he comes back, he decides to camp out at the city gate. And here's what he starts to do. He starts to campaign against his father, the king. He starts to tell people, you don't have a representative before the king. You need a judge. I wish there was somebody like me, maybe, who could be a judge for you and who could go to the king for you. And the Bible says that as Absalom sat outside of the gate of Jerusalem and talked to people, he won their hearts, he won their respect, he won their love. And eventually Absalom goes to Hebron 
and he sets himself up to be king. And when he does, David has to flee the city. David leaves Jerusalem and Absalom takes the throne for a period of time. In fact, the only way that David's able to get back to the throne and back in charge is a war breaks out. Absalom's murdered. David loses another son. All of these things, because there's a failure to discipline, there's a failure to offer correction, there's a failure to have rebuke at the sinfulness in the lives of his children. And so as we see all of these things unfold, we see why this is such a messed up story. But one of the key elements as a parent for us to learn is that we need to learn to step in and discipline the sinful actions of our kids. David sees what's going all around him, but he doesn't do anything. David would be what we would call in this moment, in this time in history, a permissive parent. He's just giving them free reign to do what they're going to do, and whatever happens, happens. It's just full permissiveness. And so that's where David is. And so we see this permissive parent approach, and the kids just do whatever they want. They carve their own path on life. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. Good parenting requires interference on our part toward our kids. It means getting involved in their lives, knowing what's going on, correcting them when they do the wrong thing, speaking into their lives when they're wrong, disciplining our kids when they've gone off the path that God has marked out for them. So this morning, I want to give you just a couple of keys to biblical discipline. We're going to see two of them here at the front, and then after a couple of minutes, we're going to come back and look at the third. Three keys to biblical discipline. Here's the first one that I want you to see. It's relationship. One of the biblical keys for discipline in your home is the relationship you have with your kids. The second one is rules. And not just tons and tons of rules, but good, sensible helpful, life-giving rules, things that bring about goodness in your home and that make sense. Now, with those two keys, I want to give you a couple of formulas that we can see how these work together and how they help us in life or how they could hurt us in life if we don't have this right. So here's the first formula I want to give you. It's going to come up on your screen. The first one is this, relationship minus rules equals recklessness. And that seemed to be David's approach. He was dad. He had the relationship, but he didn't seem to have any rules that were guiding his kids. And guess what happens? Reckless behavior, murder, rape, deceit, taking over the kingdom. All of these things come and it's just reckless. There's this end result of recklessness that causes death and destruction, not only in David's household, but in the nation. And so that's the first thing we see, relationship minus rules brings recklessness. Here's the second thing that you're going to see. If you have rules but no relationship, that brings rebellion, right? So if you have these rules but no relationship, it's rebellious. Try enforcing rules on people that you don't have a relationship with and see how that works out for you. Just go in somewhere where you don't have a relationship with people and start telling them what to do and see how that goes over. Now, for a little while in your home with your kids, with their friends, while you're bigger and while you're stronger and while you're louder, you might be able to get away with enforcing rules without having great relationship. 
But I can promise you this. If you continue to do rules and no relationship, you are going to breed rebellion in your kids. They're going to go against you. They're not going to want anything to do with you. They're going to get fed up with the way you do things, and they're going to turn away from the path you've set. Here's a great quote from Josh McDowell. He says this, young people do not respond to rules. They respond to rules in a context of a loving, intimate relationship. That's what they're looking for. So here's the better way. It's the third formula. It's the one that works. It's the one I want to encourage you with, that you need to have a relationship and rules that's going to lead to respect. You need to develop a deep relationship with rules and see how respect is born out of that. More often than not, if you cultivate a deep relationship with your kids and you put rules in place that make sense and they're life-giving, they're not meant to squelch your kids and keep them down, but they're life-giving, they will live under the authority and they'll develop lives pursuing the things of God that they see you model as they watch you pursue your Father in heaven and you live under His authority, the relationship with Him and His rules and how you respect God, more often than not, your kids are going to follow suit and they're going to continue a relationship with Jesus. Now, we said there were three keys to biblical discipline. Here's the third one. It's consistency. We need to be consistent in how we live out these things. There needs to be consistency in how you enforce the rules you've established in your home. This helps kids learn accountability. Now, don't tell your kids you're going to do something. Don't make a threat that you're not going to follow up on. This is what I see all the time. It happens in every corner of culture. It happens in every type of relationship, in every type of home. You've probably seen it too. More often than not, it's at Walmart. Go, just go watch what happens at Walmart. You're going to hear a parent say, if you do that one more time, I'm going to spank you. Or if you do that one more time, I'm taking that away. Or if you do that one more time, you're grounded. And what happens? The kid does it again. Is there any punishment? Nope. They get another if you do it one more time. And then they do it again. And is there punishment? Nope. They get another if you do that one more time. How many times do we need to tell our kids one more time and I'm coming for you? If you're going to make a threat, follow through. Consistency is key to teaching kids accountability in relationships. And so that's what I want us to see today. And as I talk about that, I want to tell you, children instinctively push against the boundaries of the rules that you establish. They're always going to be looking for how they can spread their wings and find more freedom. But kids thrive in a, an environment that has rules, that has relationship, that has context for those things, and they're stronger when there are boundaries in their life. Kids need boundaries. It reminded me of a story that I heard one time of a group of kids at a preschool, and every day they would go out and play on a playground. The playground had a chain-link fence all around it. And on the outside of that chain link fence was a busy highway with cars flying up and down. But every day, the kids would go out and play on that playground until one day 
They came to the school, went outside for recess, and the chain link fence was gone. There were some repairs being done. They were improving the playground, but the fence was gone. And all of a sudden, instead of the kids running out to the playground equipment like they always had, the teachers looked around and they found the kids huddled up close to the building. They had all kinds of freedom, more freedom than they had ever had. There were no more boundaries. But instead of going out and finding those things, they found themselves scared. The boundary had been taken away. There was nothing left to tell them what was safe. The highway became a danger to them now. And the kids refused to go and play on the playground. Our kids thrive when there are boundaries, when there are rules, when there's relationship, and when there's consequences. And when they mess up, we need to be ready to follow through with the consequences that we tell them they're going to face. As your kids get older, the boundaries decrease. We see this happen all the time in life. My kids are getting older. There are fewer and fewer rules. There's more freedom for them as long as they operate within a certain boundary. But the minute they step outside of those rules that we have or those boundaries we establish, if they do something we don't approve of, if they do something they know is against our policies, our guidelines, our rules in our home, there's going to be correction for them. There's going to be discipline for them. There's going to be punishment of some sort for them. And so that's where we need to be. But this is where the relation slip comes into play. And here's what I want us to hit on just for the next few minutes. The relation slip, and you're going to see this on your screen, is this. The relation slip occurs when we discipline strictly to punish and not to train or guide for godliness. If you punish or you discipline your kids just to keep them under control, just to show them how much bigger and stronger and more powerful you are, you'll accomplish that and only that. You'll show them, I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you, I'm louder than you, and they'll know it, but that's all they'll get. If you're punishing strictly to punish and not train or guide for godliness, you're going to cause some heartache in your relationship. I can think about a time when one of my kids was two years old, just little, and they were having a bad day. And when a two-year-old has a bad day, everybody has a bad day. I was home alone with my son at this point, and uh, just the two of us there, he's screaming, has been for a long time, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, it's been a bad day, nothing I say helps, giving him food doesn't help, taking him to play doesn't help, nothing. He's just screaming and yelling, and everything is a chaotic moment in our home. And I can just remember picking my son up in a moment of sheer frustration and holding him in front of my face. Now listen. I'm going to tell you this story, and I'm not here in the room with you guys this morning. I'm going to tell you this story, not because it's a proud parenting moment. This may be my lowest parenting moment, so I hope you'll hang in there with me, and I hope I'm not fired after I share this story with you. But I had my son in front of me, holding him by his arms. He's two. He's little. I can do this. And then I have him in his room, so I put him down on his bed. And as I threw him down on his bed, as I placed him gently down on his bed... <laughs> I got right in his face. He's screaming and crying and has been forever. And I just went, stop screaming as loud as I could. And here's what happened. My little two-year-old. <laughs> the 
tears have caught up. He can't get his breath. I've screamed in his face. I won because I was bigger, I was stronger, and I was louder. But guess what I saw in my son? He was afraid. I didn't do anything to correctively guide him or train him to something better. I just won. I got him to stop, but it brought fear and insecurity into our relationship. And I'll never forget the look on his face as he's taking those shallow breaths and trying to hold back the tears with fear in his eyes that his dad's just screamed at him. I started thinking, man, that is not how God disciplines me when I'm not doing the right thing. It's not how God acts toward me when I go against him. And it broke my heart to think that. And I tell you that story this morning because I want us to remember that the goal of raising a sinner is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We want to move them toward being a worshiper. But to do that, we've got to show them through our discipline, through our corrective actions, through rebukes when they sin, that there's something better for them to pursue than the sinful things that they're doing. And so in that, we look to Scripture. And this is where we're given some helpful instructions about parenting in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Here's what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, fathers, he could say parents, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Now, I'm going to come back to the second half of that verse in a second. Some translations say this, fathers, do not exasperate your children to anger. And when it says exasperate your children to anger, in exasperate and anger, it's the same Greek word. He uses the same word there. In other words, it might say something like this. It might easily read, don't anger your kids to the point of them being angry. Don't frustrate your kids until they're continually frustrated. Don't irritate your kids and make them irritable. Fathers, mothers, don't exasperate your kids. Don't push them over the edge. Don't force their hand to be angry, to be rebellious, to be frustrated, to be irritated. Discipline in love. Not to be heavy-handed, not to win, not to be the stronger, bigger person, the louder person, but to shape them and guide them toward godliness, toward love. So when I think about that, it reminds me of the movie Braveheart. I don't know if you've seen Braveheart or not, but there's a scene where the Scots have lined up for war to go against the English, and there's really no intention of fighting. Really, the Scots are there to surrender. They're going to go and take the terms of surrender to the English soldiers until William Wallace shows up, and he's got all kinds of things going on in him. There's animosity built up in him. You can just see it, and one of the guys asks him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm here to pick a fight. Like, that's his objective. We're never going to take Scotland for ourselves and have our freedom if we don't fight against the English. So I'm here to pick a fight. Parents, let me tell you this. In your home, that's not a good idea. Because if you pick a fight, you'll get a fight. But it won't result in your kids finding correction and rebuke and discipline that encourages them 
toward righteousness and right living and respect for you and respect for God. So fathers, don't exasperate your children. I want to tell you this. It's the next thing you're going to see on your outline this morning. Discipline is not intended to crush a child's spirit or to shame them into obedience. The goal is to lovingly teach them what's right and good and lead them to worship and honor Jesus. That's what this is about. Don't crush your child's spirit or shame them into obedience. The goal is to lovingly teach them what's right and what's good. So the end of that verse we looked at just a second ago says this, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So that makes me ask the question, well then, And how does God train us? How does God discipline us? We should learn some things from how God does this. And so here's the next passage I want us to see this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He writes this and says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And so in Hebrew, they use two words to get this point across and show how God disciplines and trains us so that we will live righteous lives before him. The first word is discipline. He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. The Hebrew word there is yasar. And it conveys the idea of taking action to discipline. It's doing something tangible, something physical to discipline. And it's the idea that there are consequences of our sinful behavior. And sometimes God just allows us to deal with the consequences of sin. He doesn't bail us out of trouble. He just lets us go through what sin naturally sows and reaps. So sometimes God will just take his hands off and let us experience the consequences of sin. No bailouts. Other times God might have to spank us a little bit, so to speak. Maybe God takes something away from your life that you crave or pursue or do that's sinful, and he's going to say, I'm going I'm to remove that from you. I'm not going to even give you the choice anymore to go that way. There are lots of ways that God might do this, but he takes loving action against our sin, and it's always for the point in the sake of restoring us to relationship with him. Then here's the second word you see. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. That word rebuke in the Hebrew is yakach. It conveys the idea that God uses words to correct us. That he speaks to us. Sometimes before we go down the wrong path, there's words to to instruct us away from sinful things and to say, avoid that, don't go there. It's disciplinary in front of the idea. Then there's also the idea of him saying, hey, I want to take what you've done and I want to speak into you and correct you for where you've gone and the sinful path you've pursued. So God speaks to us, sometimes through his word, sometimes through that still small voice of his spirit convicting us of sin in our life, sometimes through messages like this or people that you trust who are discipling you or investing in you and sharing God's truth with you. And so all of these things that God does to instruct us and guide us away from sinful behavior. And we do the same thing with our kids, right? There are times that they do something and it requires action to correct a problem. There's other times that it takes us going and speaking into their life 
guiding them away from something that we see as dangerous, we know is coming against them, that we want to tell them not to go that way. Don't do that. And we correct them with our words. Uh, In my home growing up, my parents were not against putting hand to bottom and showing us corrective action when we did something wrong. But more often than not, they would just use words to convey truth to us. This is wrong and this is why. This is how we do things and this is why. I can remember one time uh, that I was having a conversation. I don't remember if I was talking to my brother or my dad, but it was in front of my mom and I was having this conversation and my mom interjected and said, uh, said, what did you say? And I immediately, without even thinking, because I was a brain-dead teenager, I said, it's none of your business. I'm having a private conversation. That was the wrong thing to say. (laughs) My dad was in the room, and I'll never forget him looking at me and going, you, outside, now. And I tucked my twelve between my legs and put my head down and went outside. And I got out to where my truck was, and I sat down against a tire on my truck, had it leaning against my back, because if you're sitting on your bottom with your back to a truck, nobody can spank you, uh, even though I was a teenager at the time. But my dad came out, and I knew he was angry. I knew his frustration. I knew I had just done the wrong thing. And he came out, and he sat down beside me, and without raising his voice, without any anger, without ever lifting a finger against me, he said, son, That's your mom, but that's my wife. Don't ever speak to her like that again. And listen, church, I got to tell you, in that moment, I wish he had just punched me in the gut. I really do. It would have been easier for me to take if he had just hauled off and punched me. His words in that moment conveyed something to me that I never, ever forgot. You respect your mother. Or the next time... (laughs) there might be different consequences. And so he spoke truth into my life, right? And so that's what we do with our kids. Sometimes we take action to correct responsive problems or disciplinary problems. Sometimes we speak. Now, let's look at one last text to throw a little more light on the why behind our responsibility to discipline our kids. This comes from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. And here's what the author of Hebrew writes. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, really for the parents or the kids. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So here's what you see. Discipline is not for the sake of getting our way. Discipline is is for the sake of producing in our kids righteousness, right living with God, with others, and peace. That's what we're about. That's the why behind this. Why not just be a permissive parent? Why discipline? Why step in and and intercede in my child's life, intervene or interfere in my child's life? Why? Because when you do this, No discipline seems fun at the time, but if you do it, it will produce a harvest of right living and of peace. Peace in your home, peace in your life, peace in their life, peace in your community. Disciplined kids have righteous, peaceful ways of life. And so that's what we see in this passage. I want to tell you in the middle of that, when we discipline, we're not shooting for behavior modification. 
There's nothing in me that wants to just see my kid change their behavior for a moment. Because the truth is, as soon as I'm out of earshot, out of eyeshot, if I've just worked to change their behavior, when I'm not around to guide them and discipline them, they're going to go right back to doing what they did before. The goal is not behavior modification. The goal and the why is heart change, producing a harvest of righteousness and peace. That's the why behind discipline. And so I want to encourage you that what you're doing in your child's life is changing their heart as you discipline them. And it results in a lifetime of them following after Jesus, living with righteousness, having peace in their heart toward God, toward others. But it requires relationship, rules, and consistency. That's what we're called to do as Christian parents. So here's how I want to close. I want to remind you as parents, we're raising sinners and we're raising worshipers. And next week we're going to talk about the idea that we're raising adults. And our long-term goal is to launch them out into life so that they know how to live for the glory of God. But our relationship with them is vital It's vital that we discipline our kids in a way that doesn't just change their behavior, but it shapes their heart. It's vital that we discipline our kids in a way that we change. And so if there's one thing I can encourage you to do this morning, I don't know how you discipline, I don't know what your methods are, I don't know how if you're struggling in this area right now, but here's the one thing I would tell you to really evaluate. And if you need to make a change, make a change. If you need to grow, grow, whatever. You can never decrease in this, but here's what I want to encourage you with. If you're going to do anything next to learn how to better discipline your kids, solidify your relationship with them. The relationship is all important. One day down the line, they're going to walk out from your house. You're going to want a solid, firm relationship that no matter where they go, no matter what they do, they know if there's a problem, if they get in trouble, if there's an issue, if they're struggling in some way, they know I can come back to mom and dad. I can call mom and dad. I've got a relationship that's going to endure into adulthood because we are raising sinners who will hopefully become worshipers and we're raising adults that are one day going to raise your grandchildren. So we want to help them know how to do the very best they can in life, to be disciplined, trained, equipped to follow Jesus. And so that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. God always does this toward us in a heart of love. As you grow your relationship, do it with love. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.